0: You're listening to a podcast from the RSA. You can find out more about RSA events and projects and how to get involved with the fellowship by visiting our website, thersa.org. So good evening, everybody, and welcome to our uh, special event uh, this evening where we have a two-for-one offer uh, to uh, the greatest minds analysing the problems of the world's financial system. Uh, So uh, I'm Tony Greenham, Director of Economy, Enterprise and Manufacturing at the RSA, my pleasure to be introducing this event. So, let me introduce our guests. They don't need much introduction. John Kay is one of Britain's foremost economists. He's a journalist at the FT, an academic, a businessman, and author of numerous books. Uh, his most recent is the one that we're um, talking about this evening Other People's Money, Masters of the Universe, or Servants of the People which I know he's very professionally uh, stood upright <laughs> so that you can also have done a few literary festivals. Um, and uh, secondly, Adair Turner, who's chairman of the Institute for New Economic Thinking and a former chairman of the Financial Services Authority. Uh, Lord Turner is the author of Economics After the Crisis and most recently, Between Debt and the Devil. Yeah. This evening is a, conf- uh, is a con- conversation rather than a series of lectures. So uh, I'm going to start, though, by... Uh, Appropriately, for what we like to think of as the world's oldest tech incubator, uh, we're going to ask them both to give you a three-minute elevator pitch of the core of their diagnosis and ideas for reform of the financial system. John, if you would like to start.
1: Thanks, Tony. People outside the finance sector sometimes ask me, what do people in finance actually do? What are all these people who get out of the tubes at Bank and Canary Wharf do all day, and indeed all night, because the lights shine brightly for much of the time? What they do is, to an extent that is really quite astonishing, what they do is trade with each other. Just to give you one or two examples, we all know that world trade in goods and services has expanded a lot, But world trade in foreign exchange is 100 times the underlying volume of trade in goods and services. The total value of exposures under derivative contracts is around $600 trillion. And if that seems a mind-blowing number, it should be, because it's between two and three times the value of all the assets in the world. A lot of people still think that what banks do is they take deposits and they lend to business. Actually, if you look at the balance sheets of British banks, uh, lending to non-financial business accounts for less than 3% of the total. And a company called Spread Networks has recently built a telecoms link through the Appalachian Mountains, whose purpose is to reduce the time it takes to transmit data between Chicago and New York, from 7.3 milliseconds to 6.6 milliseconds. Now, of course, the irreducible physical minimum for that time is 4.3 milliseconds, which is the time it takes for light to move from Chicago to New York. Now, none of us can detect a millisecond, and the purpose of this is obviously to enable the computers which are at each end of the link these computers, to trade with each other using pre-programmed algorithms. You might ask, and this is a question which I go into in the book, what all of this is for? And it's not a question that has any very satisfactory answer. Because what, is what we've seen over the last 30, 40 years is a process called financialization. In which the finance sector has grown larger, grown more inward looking, and has become more and more divorced from the underlying needs of the real economy. And the real economy needs financial services. Let's be clear about that. Without a financial system, we don't have the kind of prosperity that we've become used to. We need a financial system to operate our payments, we need a financial system to help us manage our wealth over our lifetime. We need a financial system to help with capital allocation. We need a financial system to help us manage risk. But as I've described, over recent years, the financial system has grown and become more, in this sense, introverted. We're not, despite its growth, we're actually meeting the underlying needs of the real economy worse. Now, when I talk about all of this to an audience like this, Uh, it obviously turns to what's the answer to all of this. And people typically say what we need is more regulation. Actually, in my view, we don't need more regulation. We have far too much regulation, and regulation is part of the problem rather more than part of the solution. What we need is not to extend yet further the literally thousands of pages of rules which financial regulatory agencies around the world have written, what we need to do is adopt a quite different approach to regulation which focuses on the structure of the industry and the incentives of people within it. And it's only if we move to a new regulatory philosophy that I think we will answer the kind of problems which I've described. And we should not underestimate the magnitude of these problems What we're seeing in the political disarray, which we now see in so many countries, is essentially a manifestation of the unfocused public anger about what happened in 2008 and about the role of finance in the economy, which has not gone away and is not going to go away unless we can restore a financial system that actually meets the real needs of the economy for financial services.
0: Thank you, John. Well, we're obviously going to be exploring a lot of those themes, but interesting your point about us having too much uh, regulation rather than too little. uh, is almost the perfect point at which to go to you, Adair, because you were the country's senior financial regulator, (laughs) of course, at one point. So so, um, I think there's a difference of emphasis, perhaps, in in your diagnosis. Would you like to give us your three-minute distillation?
2: Um, In July 2009... Uh, I made a statement which achieved a certain element of notoriety in that in the magazine Prospect I said that much of uh, finance was socially useless and people assumed at the time that when I talked about activity being socially useless I was referring to what John has just been talking about which is Too much trading activity, too much fancy structured credit activity, too many CDS and credit uh, derivatives. And actually, that is exactly uh, what I was talking about at that time. Uh, I think that if in the course of the financial crisis of 2007-8, we had managed to mislay the instructions for how to make a CDO squared, it was unlikely that humanity was, as a result, any worse off. But I also became increasingly convinced as I thought about what had occurred in 2008 and even more about why it was so difficult for the global economy to recover from 2008, that although that overexplosion of financial (coughs) innovation and trading was undoubtedly a problem that we should try to uh, get rid of, that the even bigger problem derived from some things which, in a micro sense, looked at each loan by loan might be socially useful, but in total had a harmful macroeconomic result. The crucial part of my argument is, and the first chart in the book, looks at the growth of debt. This isn't the intra-financial system debt, which John has talked about. This is real debt owed by the real economy, households and companies to the financial system. In the advanced economies, In total, in 1950, that debt level was 50% of GDP. By 2007, it was 170% of GDP, and it grew pretty much every single year from 1950 to 2007 and at an accelerating pace over the last 20, the, the final 20 years. When that growth of debt occurred, it produced very little concern among finance theorists who were basically much more worried about some countries in the world that didn't have enough debt rather than too much debt, and very little concern among monetary theorists who had developed a set of theories that said that you could ignore the details of the financial system. And actually, I think it might have been possible to keep or treat all debt as either favourable or neutral if two things that economics tends to say about debt were true. We tend to say that banks take deposits of existing money and lend it on to entrepreneurs and businesses funding capital investment in the real economy. Unfortunately, I have to tell you that both elements of that statement are completely wrong. They belong on the fictional areas of the bookshop, along with Harry Potter, not on the factual bits. Banks don't just take existing money and lend it on. They create credit, money, and purchasing power that did not previously exist. And that is fundamental to how the macroeconomies works. And in modern economies, they do not primarily allocate that purchasing power to businesses and entrepreneurs. They lend it very significantly to consumers to bring forward consumption. But even more than that, they lend against real estate. And most lending out of banking systems in the modern economy essentially finances a competition between people for the ownership of an asset which already exists, existing real estate and the land on which it sits. And it turns out that this has some major implications because if banks can create more credit and money and purchasing power and if they primarily lend out against existing real estate which already exists and which you can't rapidly create more of because what matters is the specific location – then you unleash these amazing cycles of more credit produces higher asset prices, produces more credit. And this then eventually blows up in a way that a great but almost totally ignored uh, economist called Hyman Minsky uh, warned us about. When it blows up and if the economy is already has a, lot of, already has a high level of debt in place, we enter an environment where the debt doesn't go away, it just shifts around the economy from the private to the public sector, and where all our policy levers for keeping demand in the economy going are either blocked because we've got too much public debt, so we don't think we can run fiscal deficits, or are ineffective because we cut the interest rate to zero, but if people have too much debt to start with, they don't respond to that. Now, my book is an exploration of the problems that derive from that. It essentially tries to answer the question, why has the last eight years since 2008 been a period of such slow growth and low inflation despite this enormous monetary stimulus of low interest rates, zero interest rates, negative interest rates, QE, that we've chucked at it. I think the fundamental problems are too much debt. What do I therefore think we should do in regulation. I think we need a completely different approach to the combination of monetary policy and regulation. I don't think that we can simply control our economies as the central banks before the crisis believed by saying we'll use one policy instrument, the interest rate, and we'll have one objective, low and stable inflation. Because actually what we learned before the crisis is you can achieve the objective of low and stable inflation but still produce a complete disaster. I think we have to pay attention to how much total debt there is in the economy and to the balance of that debt. I also think we need a completely different approach towards the regulation of the banking system. And here I do largely actually agree with what John says. Here is what my regulation for banks would say. It would say banks should normally run with an equity capital ratio of 25%. By the way, before the crisis, it could be as low as 2%. 25%. If the equity capital ratio falls below 15%, then the authorities, the central bank, and the Ministry of Finance can nationalize it without any compensation. Oh. That's it. <laughs> That's my regulation. Thank you.
0: Well, <clears throat> Uh, refreshingly uh, uh, blunt in, in, uh, in regulation. The, so equity capital, of course, being that portion uh, that can absorb losses that the banks make, and if you have too little of it, and the bank is very vulnerable to collapse, hence 25%. But um, you, you do share common ground uh, on a lot of your diagnosis, certainly in terms of the amazingly small proportion of bank balance sheets that does things that we all might think are useful, such as lending to small businesses. But uh, there's a difference of emphasis on this question of money and credit creation there. Uh, And I noticed that, that John, you actually, I think, you you put the phrase money creation in inverted commas uh, in your book. So uh, can we just explore that? I mean, do, do you... Except Adair's description of um, the banking system creating new purchasing power and new money, and that is an essential source of the instability, or do you not think that's so much of a worry?
1: I don't really. I think this discussion of money creation by banks follows the kind of model of banking that was around 100 years ago. And the financial system we have today is actually much more complicated than that. What we have today, and this was always the essence of what was there, is a system that creates the illusion of liquidity. We have a vast volume of both genuine and the socially useless activity, Adair described, in financial markets. That's a world in which people believe that they can get their money back from these transactions in a a few hours or a few days, if they want to. And they can do it, so long as not very many people want to do it at the same time. That's the mystique on which banking has always been based. We now have a much more complicated system with all these financial transactions, all these financial instruments, uh, and we have the same issue, uh, that these instruments are liquid, so long as not very many people want to exercise that, and they cease to be when they do. Now, if we think about that, uh, we have phenomenon like that all around the economy. All of us know, and we're right to know, that we can plug our appliances into the electricity mains, and we'll get electricity. But if all of us did it at once, we couldn't. All of us think that we can go to King's Cross and get on a train to Edinburgh any time we want, and we can. But if even a small fraction of the number of people who think that did, then they wouldn't find seats on the train. And so on, and so on, and so on. And this confidence illusion is actually essential to making an economy work. Uh, So, in my view, there's nothing very special about finance in this respect. And we've generated a whole complex set of institutions of lender of last resort and the like that says that uh, governments will intervene to try and sustain this liquidity illusion. And to my mind, that intervention actually generates its own necessity. Uh, I use in the book the analogy of uh, the milk round. You know, my mother could always order an extra pint of milk from the milkman and get it. But if many of the milkmen's customers did, they wouldn't be able to. Uh, and finance is in this sense, just, just like that. And uh, if the government came in and said, well, if ever there's a shortage of milk, we'll send someone round to deliver extra pints, <laughs> then what would happen would be the milkman wouldn't have the extra on his milk float. And you wouldn't be able to get it except by the government intervening. And that's exactly what we've done in finance, which is why banks as Adair describes, have been able to operate on this ludicrously inadequate equity base. And what we need to do is slim down down one side of the balance sheet and raise the equity component on the other and uh, create less, remove fundamentally the idea that government is going to be there in order to bail banks out. We need to treat finance as an industry like any other, and that's the thrust of what I was saying earlier, and it's the thrust of the kind of policy proposals that are in my book. We need to get rid of the mystique, all the fancy phrases about fractional reserve banking and quantitative easing and these kind of things, and ask, what are the goods and services we want from finance, and how do we get them?
0: I'm sure we could all hmm. agree with getting rid of the mystique, but Adair, I think you, you yeah. identify something that is special about yeah. banking. Yeah. It's not like... Milk no, milk, just... what,
2: what, what's interesting about John and I is we end up at the same place in terms of radical regulations for a different reason. John says, you know, our problem is we've treated finances differently, therefore, you know, we shouldn't allow it to be as big and out of control as it is. I think the reason why we've got to really focus on making sure that it isn't big and out of control, is that it is different. I do think there is something about money creation and I think there is a failure of modern economics from about the 1960s onwards to think about what money is and what credit is in the insightful ways that early 20th century economists such as Knut Wicksell, Friedrich von Hayek or John Maynard Keynes in the treatise on money, I think they thought about credit and money in a way that modern economics is not. I think banks, unless they, we constrain them, if they are allowed to exist – and I do think you have to use the word fractional reserve banks – Uh, And by the way, for those who don't know what that means, a fractional reserve bank is a bank which only keeps a fraction of all your deposits in absolute money at the Bank of England, right? It only has a small fraction of your deposit money in the form of sovereign money issued by the Bank of England, either notes of coins. That's what we mean by fractional reserve banking. And I think we do need to understand that fractional reserve banks can create credit and purchasing power that didn't previously exist. I think they could always do that when we simply had simple banks which took deposits and lend it on. Because they don't just take deposits and lend it on, they take deposits and then in lending on, they create another deposit. And that caused major problems even when we didn't have lender of last resorts, It caused major problems in the 19th century. It would would every now and then cause catastrophic crashes because these independent private banks would create too much private money. Actually, at that time, it was in the form of actual private printed uh, banknotes, and they'd bring the economy way down. And the point is, a banking system, when it is badly managed or badly regulated, can bring the whole economy down, Whereas an individual company, whether it be an auto manufacturer or an electricity company, etc., they can't bring the whole economy down. They can only bring down their particular sector or their particular company. So I think the classic Mm -hmm. classic banking system did create credit and money and purchasing power uh, with major uh, implications. And I think a lot of the most thoughtful people, whom I quote, in the 1930s America believe that the fundamental reason why America went into a catastrophic crisis after 29 to 33 was an unconstrained banking system in the 1920s which was creating too much credit, money, and purchasing power. Now, I think that the way we create this credit, money, and purchasing power has got immensely more complicated. And the way that I think about what we call the shadow banking system which developed before the crisis, is that we've created new ways of creating, essentially, purchasing power, etc. And that's where it overlaps very precisely with John's idea of liquidity. And by the way, we have over-iconized liquidity in our financial markets. There is a value in people being able to hold an equity instrument and not always hold it forever, but sometimes to sell it. But the idea that we need the liquidity of trading that every minute or every second or every nanosecond, there is no justification of that whatsoever. So, I mean, this is a very complicated debate between John and I, but I think that it is absolutely crucial to understand that banks are implicated, at least banks as fractional reserve banks, which we allow to exist, are implicated in the dynamics of the macroeconomy, in a way that other a, parts of the economy are not.
0: Thank you. Do you mind, John, if we leave that conceptual debate for, for everyone to, to, to chew on when they read your books? Because I, I'd like to move on. It's right. Perhaps buy
1: both books. Right. obviously. <laughs> because how are they going <laughs> to resolve their own point of view? But I, mean, I, want, but I want a brief moment, Tony, okay. to on. say that an electricity company can bring our economy to a halt a lot faster than a failed bank can.
2: Well, yeah. um, on the other hand, and, John, I can't think of a single major macroeconomic recession which has been caused by failures in the electricity system. Because we system. manage
1: electricity well and we manage finance badly, and that's what we need to learn. Our, our electricity system is designed by engineers with resilience and stability as priorities. Our financial system wasn't designed by anybody. And far... Well, and, and, it, it,
2: and, it developed because... Even without a banking system, people can create credit that didn't previously exist. I mean, let let me give you an example. We know that there have been throughout history all sorts of absurd surges, irrational exuberance, madness of crowds in which prices have gone to absolutely absurd levels. Most of the ones which are problematic are driven by bank lending, supporting, you know, a a real estate boom here, etc., But they can be created without bank lending. They could be created just by vendor credit. The tulip um, explosion in uh, 1630s uh, in the Netherlands was not based on the banking system. It was based upon the free generation between people of credit, which led to an extraordinary explosion of prices. So these are freely generating problems which derive from credit. And just remember what credit is, what, what money is. Money is anything that you believe is money. Credit, and is created by credit, which comes from credere, which means to believe. And there's something very fundamental here about our ability to overcreate money out of the belief that that money exists. And I don't think that was just created by bad regulation. I think that was inherent within the nature of money creation. I think we then realised we got to regulate it but didn't do a very good job of regulating. But it was inherent to the nature of it rather than something that we just created
1: by bad regulation. We could continue it. this debate all night, but I'll let you... Yeah, we could, indeed. Yeah,
0: thank, you, thank you, John. Because I, cause I'd like to You um, <clears> both uh, make the point that you can have too much of a good thing, I think is a phrase that you use, John, in terms of the size of the financial system. And we've been so used to being told over the years uh, that um, the City of London is the jewel in the crown of the British economy and that we should you know, uh, promote it and grow it as much as possible. Um, you both uh, would argue that there's an optimal size for the financial system and the one we've got is too big. But I'd like to try and get, get an idea of, of how far off we are. So if you imagine that this front row were all financial systems of different countries with the least sophisticated over, sophisticated over here very little finance, and the most uh, overly complex uh, gentleman there waving it on the left, the most complex and oversized, and in the middle is the optimal financial system. Which country is it over on the right with the least sophisticated? Who's in the middle, and where is the UK? Right.
2: Well, there are undoubtedly countries which, at least until recently... I think there's a reasonable case that they had an underdeveloped financial system. This was very much the pre-crisis orthodoxy. It was expressed in things that I quote. There's a, a famous review of the literature by a man called Ross Levine that looked at the econometric literature, and it said if you take a country like India, which we're going to place at the end of there in 1980, it only had credit to GDP of 10%, and they argued that the this was insufficient to achieve a mobilization of capital whether it be in agriculture or manufacturing etc and the pre-crisis orthodoxy was india was at 10% india would be better at 30 or 40% but sort of assumed that this relationship was linear and limitless and that ever more financial deepening ever more private credit to gdp was good If you look at some of the latest studies that have come out, and I I wouldn't overstate these because, you know, it's always, you know, the econometrics only take us so far here, but there's a very interesting study by the OECD last June, which really came back and challenged that assumption that more private credit to GDP was linear and limitlessly good. And it said there's a turning point at about 90%, that once private credit to GDP, company and household combined goes above about 90%, that's not so good for the uh, economy. There was other studies by a man called Steve Cicchetti, who used to be at the Bank for International Settlement, which gave a a, a much bigger figure. Um, Versus that 90%, we're Oh, way over there, Um, in terms of the total level of debt. And I think it is important to realize that there are two separate issues here. One is, suppose you get rid of all the over-complex links within the financial system, how big, optimally, should the size of the consolidated balance sheet of the financial system be vis-a-vis the real economy? Mm. And I believe that our economies are, have got too much debt and that consolidated balance sheet has got too big and that we've, uh, we are over-leveraged societies. There's then a separate issue of, how much intra-financial system complexity you've you've produced on top of that.
1: There are are two parts to this. One is we shouldn't be asking what share of GDP we want finance to be, because what matters is not how much of it there is, but what it does. Uh, It's obvious that you can have too little, North Korea, and you can have too much, the United States, and there is something in between. Now, what is it in between? What What it is in between is a financial sector that focuses on the things the real economy needs. And that's managing payments, that's helping us spread our consumption over our lifetime, that's allocating capital, and that's some contribution to risk mitigation. Now, very little of the financial system we have is devoted to doing these things. Capital allocation, actually, and we need to come back to this, is very largely about housing. Most of the debt... Adair is describing is housing related debt. When I said that the, the balance sheets of British banks, less than 3% was lending to, to non financial business. Um, 70% of the lending outside the financial system is actually lending on residential mortgages. Yeah. Basically, what banks do, uh, or the bit of the bank we need, is they take deposits and they lend on mortgages. And the truth is that's not a very difficult business and it used to be done rather better by the guys who were sort of towards the bottom of my class at school who went on to become building society managers rather than go on to universities. And then it was taken over by much cleverer people who did it much worse with a rather complicated <laughs> mathematics. That's, that, 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 that's what we need to reverse. Now the second point is something I raise in the book under the heading of The British Dilemma. And uh, Martin Wolf put that rather more crudely than I did, which is uh, to say that if you discover you have a national competitive advantage in the export of toxic waste, what should you do? (laughs) And the answer to that isn't entirely clear. (laughs) Um, You know, we are clearly rather good at financial services. And most of these financial services are sold to foreigners who shouldn't really be buying them, but they are, and as a result of people buying them, then we're earning, uh, we're earning a great deal in foreign exchange and in salaries for individuals involved that would not otherwise be earned. By the way, there's a, there's a fallacy that the City of London produces vast amounts of, uh, of tax. The main tax it produces is the income tax on the incomes of people who work in the finance sector. But since some people in the finance sector earn a lot, that is a lot. But it's that PAYE and national insurance that is actually the big element. And I'm torn both ways of this. On the one hand, it is contributing to Britain's overall economic strength, on the other, I think of my students, the brightest of my students at Oxford, who were clamouring to get jobs in the financial sector, and many of whom did. And I wonder what they might have done if they hadn't been employed in uh, in these city institutions. That I might actually have done more to make everyone in this
0: room better off. That's the dilemma. Well, in my case, that's working at the RSA, but you can judge whether or not that's contributed more to uh, overall stability. I think it would be great to get some questions from the audience now. From me, so you, so definitely had your hand up first. So, um, I have a question for the panelists. Um, I run a uh, an engineering company in the UK, fast growing. Uh, we export eighty five percent of our product to the United States, and uh, we employ a lot of young engineers. And I cannot get more than a £5,000 overdraft from a bank. So the banking system does not exist for me. Now, politicians make a lot of noise about this, but nobody does anything about it. And I I wondered um, why you thought that was the case. Excellent. Quick cuts right to the heart of the matter there. Uh, Gentleman over here.
2: Uh, I wonder how you propose, uh, Adair, to reduce the level of debt and and John, to get rid of all this. ridiculous inter-financial sector trading without uh, plunging us into an even bigger <coughs> depression uh, than we've had for the last uh, century or so.
0: Excellent. And then we'll th- the third question was the uh, lady over here. Hello. Uh, I wonder what is your opinion in terms of the quantitative methods that have been used in, for instance, regulation like base, Basel III and what's your opinion in terms of the Uh, effectivity or efficiency of these methods. Thank you. Okay. Why such political inertia? John?
1: Well, I didn't think that was quite the question, but uh, but it's a question we need to come to in a moment. I I think there are two... Well, they almost all come into one question, which relates to what should happen to the structure of this industry. And in my view, the essence of the structural reform that's needed is to focus specialist institutions. What banks, should, deposit-taking banks, should basically be doing is lending on mortgage. Now, banks used to be in the business of lending to small businesses, and as you describe, have largely exited it. Uh, I think what we need, right, right. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. Uh, if anyone thinks it's not insulting to offer you a five thousand <laughs> pound loan, then uh, well, we can disagree on what is small. Right. But, but anyway, uh, l- 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 lending to business, and the truth is quoted companies typically do not characteristically need external finance. Yeah. It's, the, it's the unlisted sector that does. And I think what we need in the future is to have specialist institutions that some are cr- something of a cross between the traditional branch bank and the venture capital industry that used to exist before people discovered they could get large fees for a much easier business of managing management buyouts from existing organizations. I think creating regionally and locally based institutions that specialize in business lending is what we need for that sector of the economy. And as I indicated in my introduction, Business lending is actually quite small relative to the aggregates we're talking about. It's just it's a very important component. And that's the reform I would want to see of them. Now, going with that, going with the creation of specialist institutions, is to say that the business of trading derivatives and the like ought to be stripped out of, away from mainstream banking. And we do benefit from some activity of that kind but that ought to be undertaken by people who are either using their own money or are using the money of people who are very close to them and who know what is being done with it and are controlling the risks that are being taken.
0: As used to be the case in, indeed before 1986 in the
1: city. Yes, exactly. So in that sense, we need to reverse that aspect of Big Bang and move away from financial conglomerates. And my answer to the Basel question is that this... As I was indicating, is to my mind essentially irrelevant to the problem. We, we could deal with these issues by raising, by demanding more bank capital. But as Adair described earlier, it would have to be orders of magnitude more bank capital, and not just a bit more bank capital, in, in, in the way we're doing under under Basel III, and for the existing structure of that of the banking system, that kind of capital simply isn't available. So that comes into structural reform
2: as well. Let me pick up the question about how do we reduce (coughs) the level of debt or trading activity and um, the regulation issue. Within your question, I distinguish two things. How do we strip out some of the intra-financial system complexity? Um, Actually, I think we can make some of that go away without any macro problem of a a lack of demand, because if people just stop doing unnecessary amounts of trading, that has no necessary impact of slowing down the economy. And indeed, by the way, some of this has already occurred. Um, If you had here a major bank active in the trading areas, they would tell you that they are doing much less of it, and they would tell you that this had produced a terrible impact on the economy called less liquidity in the government bond markets. Um, I am not convinced that that less liquidity has been a bad thing. And I am rather proud of the fact that one of the reasons why they're doing less of this activity is precisely because, as a regulator and as the chairman of the International Committee on this, we dramatically increased the capital requirements against trading activities, which, before the crisis, we had set ludicrously low. I mean, If we had set, as I think we had set, equity requirements against straight lending far too low, that was as nothing compared with what we had done with trading activity, where we were allowing people to do enormous trading books on minutely thin slivers of capital. We've dramatically increased that. It has taken quite a lot of this activity out of the system. If you actually look at it, you know, it hasn't reversed all that uh, John talks about, but the scale of the bank balance sheets which are with one another rather than the real economy, that has significantly reduced. And I think, you know, there is some success there. I think the much bigger problem is the issue of the debt vis-à-vis the real economy. And I think you've got to break that problem into two things. What do we have to do to run economies which are not so reliant on debt in the first place? And then there's a completely separate question. What the hell do you do once you've already created too much debt? On the first question, the way I characterize it in this book is this following dilemma. For about 20 years before 2007, nominal GDP, which is income, national income in money terms, went up at about 5% per annum. And the central banks were rather proud of that because that enabled a combination of about 2% growth with 2 2.5% inflation, and they called it the Great Moderation. But all the period that we were growing national income in money terms at about 5, 4 or 5% per annum, we were growing nominal credit at about 10 or 15% per annum. And at the time, it seemed to be the case that we needed this rapid credit growth of 10 or 15% per annum in order to achieve inflation in line with target and a reasonable level of real growth. But obviously, while that might be okay for some years, It can't be true in perpetuity. I mean, if you grow private credit faster than nominal GDP in perpetuity, eventually your system is going to blow up. So part of my book is an exploration of, well, what would we have to do to have economies which grew in equilibrium? And the things you've got to focus on, I think, are, first of all, I think part of this growth of credit is deriving out of rising inequality. I think if an increasing percentage of total income ends up in the hands of a small top percentage of the population, then the system only balances if their excess savings, because one of the points about rich people is they have high savings rates because they've got all that they need already. It only works if the savings of the rich people are picked up and lent to middle-income and lower-income people, but in an unsustainable fashion. There's a wonderful book on this uh, by Rajan, who is now the Reserve Bank Governor of India, great little slim book called Fault Lines, and in it he has a, a, a chapter on how the explosion of inequality in the US drives the subprime mortgage boom, because on the one hand it's producing a whole load of people at the top end of the in- income distribution who are trying to save money, and it, a whole load of people at the bottom end who are trying to make up for the fact that their real wages are not growing by borrowing money. And he says, and this is the chapter heading of the book, of of the chapter, he says, the only solution that the American political system could suggest to this problem of rising inequality was let them eat credit. And, you know, so there's an inequality argument. There's also this focus on real estate. And I do want to focus on this. I think mortgage debt is a socially useful thing up to a point. But I think if we have too much of it, we drive cycles of credit and asset prices, and if we have too much of it and it is too easily available, we produce a fall in owner occupation. That may seem completely counterintuitive, that easy mortgage credit means a fall in owner occupation. But I think that's precisely what happened in Britain in about the late 1990s, that mortgage credit was so easily available at such high loan-to-values and loan-to-incomes that the people who already had property were able to leverage up so highly and buy more property that they drove the price up to the point where the person who didn't yet have property or didn't have a parent rich enough to give them the money for a deposit couldn't get into the system. And, actually, the easy credit drove the extraordinary explosion of our buy-to-let business which went from almost 0% of the UK housing market in 1995 to now about 15% and is squeezing out first-time buyers. And so there's a paradox that you've got to get used to that beyond a certain point, more credit against real estate is bad for owner occupation. It is also bad for stability. Final question, why do they lend money to that rather than to you, the engineer? Because seen from a purely private point of view, it looks riskier. And by the way, it may be riskier. High levels of mortgage lending can screw up the macro economy, even if everybody who borrowed those mortgages pays back fully on the nail. Because it's the fact that once they're overleveraged, they will do anything to pay back their mortgage credit, which drives the economies into a post-crisis recession. And the great book to read on that is Atif Mian and an Amir Sufi, House of Debt. They show that in 2009 America, what drives America into a recession is a whole load of mortgages who got overborrowed who, because they're overborrowed and are worried by the fall in the price of their houses, just slam the brakes in terms of consumption, drive the economy into recession, but they drive it into a recession not by the fact that they default on their debt, but by the fact that they don't default on the debt. And I think we have a problem of what economists call an externality here, that seen from the private banker point of view, it is completely rational, to keep lending money against real estate, because actually we know that on average over time their losses are very low. But there's a macroeconomic effect which it will never be rational for the private sector to take into account. And so on things like Basel III, we need to junk the Basel III process, which built on Basel II, by which we ask banks themselves to set their capital requirements according to the riskiness as seen by themselves. And that produces capital weights for lending against prime mortgages, which are a tenth of the capital weight for lending against you. And that may make rational sense for the banker from a private point of view, but it doesn't make sense socially. So we've overcomplicated it and we've over relied on the idea that risk seen from a private point of view is the same as risk seen from a social point of view. It isn't.
0: Can I just draw that point out? Are you saying that to solve the problem of the housing crisis and (coughs) lack of affordability, building more houses doesn't do it by itself. Oh, no. You well, must think, fix the finance system I think as you well. need to build more
2: houses as well. Yeah, but that I think, by itself but, wouldn't... But, but by the way, you know, there's always going to be constraints on that within a densely yeah. populated country in which people care about countryside, etc. So don't imagine you're going to so easily shift it on that. Secondly, what people want is not housing in general. They want housing in particular locations, Mm-hmm. And the locations which are at the end of the tube lines, which are the easiest commutes, at the end of the railway lines at the easiest commutes, they're in the centre rather than on the edge, they'll always be higher valued. And if you've got a credit creation system that can create a limitless amount of credit against that, it will drive the price of that up and up and up. So I do think, I think we have to limit loan-to-value ratios and loan-to-income ratios in mortgage credit.
1: Look, we have 27 million houses in the UK... We're currently building 130,000 houses a year. Even if there was no additional demand from new households, that means we would be on track to replace the British housing stock every 200 years. I mean, it's blindingly obvious that the source of the real problem in the housing market is that we are not building enough houses, and we haven't been building enough houses over over the last 30 years. And there's another aspect of that, which is to say that the largest thing the financial system does in terms of capital allocation is housing. Now, how much housing expertise is there in the financial sector? The answer is almost zero. There used to be some in the building society world. That has now disappeared. If you went around the city of London and asked people to inform you about the housing market, you would be hard put to find one with anything to say except to be very complacent about what has happened to the value of his or her own house in London in the last decade.
2: Can I just make one point,
1: though? It's intriguing, John. I don't think there's a lack
2: of building or over-planning constraints in Sweden, which is a lightly populated country, but Sweden still manages to drive every now and then extraordinarily strong credit and asset price cycles in the value of central Stockholm real estate. Because even if you build more stuff on the edge of town, there's an extraordinary tendency for people to want to buy the stuff in particular locations. So I think, you know, obviously there's a supply, ease of new supply, but I think there's something. I think there's something different as well, and I think there's something in particular where we need to bring together some really quite separate disciplines of, of, of finance with urban geography. One of the extraordinary strong features of modern economies is these self-reinforcing clustering effects in dominant cities, and that has some you know, really quite dramatic uh, impacts on The the, the relationship between the credit system uh, and the real estate prices, um, which I don't think is entirely solvable by simply
1: building more space. Yeah, there there, there is only one Eaton Square, and there is a growing number of global billionaires who want houses there. But that does not explain why houses prices are going up in Chichester.
0: I sense a looming uh, question, liquidity crisis, where everybody tries to ask a question at the same time. Here it is. So I know that you had your hand up earlier on. So gentlemen at the back. We haven't
1: spoken yet about China, and yet we're hearing a huge amount of news
0: about the growing debt levels. So two questions. One, are you concerned about the rapidly rising debt levels in China? And two, if we saw a debt crisis in China, could the British and Western financial system
1: weather the storm?
0: The China question. Uh, Does a
1: financial transaction tax have any part to play in the solution?
0: Excellent. The financial transaction or Tobin tax. And uh, one more question for the lady at the front here, please. What's your take on the rise of alternative finance, such as peer-to-peer lending, and what impact do you think it will have on the economy? Brilliant. John, uh,
1: maybe I'll take the, the last two and leave China to Adair. Yeah. Um, LAUGHTER I I, I I think peer to peer lending actually re- reverts to being a traditional bank, which I would quite like it to be, or it, or it become, blows up in scams and it will do a bit of each um, <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. uh, can you tell us which ones are which
1: or <laughs> uh, no you 'll have to work that the, you 'll have to work that one out for yourself sorry, the question there was. Uh,
0: Yes, right,
1: a good question. I would love to have a financial transactions tax if I could invent one that I thought would work and would not simply lead to even more complexity in terms of complex instruments, offshore jurisdictions and the like. I think as the system is at the moment, it would probably do more harm than good.
2: Okay, China. I've just come back from China for the launch of the Chinese translation of my book and there is uh, half a chapter on it and China is something that I've been paying a lot of attention to really for the last uh, three years. I think the first thing to read and and in China there has been the most extraordinary explosion of debt. So debt to GDP in China depends which precise figure you look at but it's basically gone up by 100% of GDP in uh, six years. Uh, it's gone from about, say, 130% of GDP to about 230% of GDP, or another set of figures may be 160 to 260, but either way it's a 100% increase. And that increase in Chinese debt wasn't just coincidental with our post-financial crisis, it was a direct consequence of it. Because what happened was that the, we had created too much private debt in the West, And the Chinese authorities were then terrified, and rightly terrified, in early 2009 that attempted deleveraging by households, particularly in the U.S., was going to drive a reduction in the demand for Chinese exports. And we were seeing big, big falls in trading volumes at that time. So to offset the impact on their economy of the advanced economy financial crisis they unleashed, I would say, the biggest credit boom the world has ever seen. Initially, that was primarily through the, uh, the four big commercial banks and the three policy banks, which are state-owned banks, uh, and they're big institutions, and they're somewhat directly under control of the Chinese state. And they were encouraged, in a wonderful phrase, to open your wallets wide, and they certainly did that. And they lent huge amounts of money for infrastructure development to local government. Um, In every third and fourth tier city of China, there is six-lane highways and subway systems and museums and convention centers and apartment blocks, which will never be occupied. And China poured more concrete in about four years than America did in the 20th century. I mean, this is a construction boom on a scale that you cannot believe. As it went on, the thing then became more complicated because actually after about 2012, the growth was not primarily in the big four banks or the policy banks. It was in lots and lots of medium-sized banks, uh, what are called the provincial and city commercial banks, which have very close relationships with the local governments, somewhat quasi-corrupt relationships with the local governments and by the way we've seen that before we've seen it in Spain with the relationships between the caixa and the provincial governments in Spain and these networks the provincial bank lends money to the city or rather to what's called the local government financing platform to buy land to do development and it lends money to the developers and to the cement company and the steel company and the cycle goes up and up and up. Two huge problems have resulted from this. I mean, this is a classic thing that we've seen before, that once you've unleashed this, the authorities end up terrified of this out-of-control credit boom going on and terrified of stopping it. They're terrified of stopping it because the number of construction workers has gone up from something like, I think it's 20 million to 35 million and if they stop the boom what are they going to do with all these construction workers who can't all you know go and you know, uh, do something in the service sector so they don't know how to quite switch it off but they're also aware that the longer this goes on, they've got two huge problems. First of all, there's a real economy problem. They are now having a huge misallocation of capital. I mean, the capital of the Chinese people is being wasted. You're seeing this in what's called the rapidly rising incremental capital to output ratio, with more and more units of capital for every unit of the rise of a, 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 a income. But also, there is going to be an enormous bad debt problem. This is beginning to play out. I mean, all of this is part of the story of why the Chinese economy has slowed down over the last year. And I think it should slow down. They've got to, they've got to switch off this bit of the machine and achieve a shift of the Chinese economy to a more sustainable and consumption-led economy. And, you know, I, I think eventually they'll do that. But they will then have an enormous financial problem. Now, your question is, I think, was... Can we manage it? Is this a problem for the global financial system? And let me end with this. Not necessarily yet. Because at the moment, this 27 trillion or so of debt, because that's what we're talking about, sort of 250, 260% of GDP, and GDP is about 10 or $11 trillion, so somewhere up about 27, 28 trillion of debt two or three times bigger than all of the U.S. mortgage debt, which helped produce a crisis in in uh, uh, 2008. Almost all of these debt contracts at the moment are between different wings of the Chinese quasi-state system. They're from state-owned companies to state-owned banks. They're from local governments to state-owned banks, etc. And therefore the Chinese authorities have the capacity at the moment to, as it were, do some giant accounting exercises where they write off some debt, they recapitalize stuff. What they will eventually do as a part of this is they'll move a lot of debt to the formal central government balance sheet, because they'll have to do it, because they'll have to bail out some of these entities to stop a disaster. If they do that within the next couple of years, I think this is containable. What really worries me is if they let this mortgage, this this credit boom go on and on and on, and if at the same time they liberalise the capital flows so that a whole load of people in the rest of the world worried about only getting 0% on their German government bonds or their Japanese government bonds go off to China in the pursuit of yield enhancement encouraged to do so by a set of very clever investment banks with a sort of, have I got a product for you? And if we then create a whole set of of networks between this enormous pile of debt and the rest of the global economy, and if this blows up in 2022, and by that time it's a 50 trillion debt pile linked through a liberalized capital account to the rest of the world, then we could see a financial crisis which, you know, will really be as bad as 2008. So I hope that they tidy this up domestically before they proceed to more significant liberalisation of the capital account. Because at the moment, I think it's containable within the Chinese system.
0: Well, there we have it. I think um, we have got a little bit over time, but if we could have two really quick questions and two really quick answers, I think we could manage... And perhaps we'll just take the, the, the lady here and the gentleman at the front. Thank you. Where's the hope? Oh, well, <laughs> very good. Where's the hope? And the gentleman next to her.
1: Um, I've noticed you haven't talked about interest at all um, as part of the financial system. And I was wondering um, what would be the impact if uh, interest was taken out of the equation, basically. Like, I'm, I'm working on a startup which aims to do that. And uh, what would happen? in the financial system? If we right. had no interest, right? Yes. Well, we've sort of got no interest at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I'm not sure it works very well. Yeah. Um, uh, and the problems it creates for our, our pension system, the problems we, we create for, of exiting from this world are, I think, very real.
2: I have since i wrote this book become a visiting professor at the international center for islamic finance in kuala lumpur and i interface there with a lot of people professors who obviously come from an islamic finance direction and therefore would like to believe that we could have a world without classic debt contracts which involve uh, interest rates Uh, before i agreed to become a visiting professor i said look I believe there is too much debt in the world. I believe that debt can sometimes be not only the consequence of inequality but the driver of inequality, which is, of course, the origins of both the Islamic um, prohibition of interest and the medieval Christian and, indeed, Aristotle's concerns about interest and debt. But I do not think that we can run modern economies without the classic debt contract, which involves a pre-specified rate of interest. I think we should have less debt I think we should control debt creation I think there's a lot of arguments that it would be better if we had more contracts which were of a mixed debt and equity form but I think it is a delusion to believe uh, that we can run modern economies without a significant though less than at the present role for the classic debt contract Where is the hope? The hope I think always relies on rational, open, public debate like we've been having today, right? There are very, very big problems in the global economy. Um, I I spent four and a half years of my life uh, as a regulator, and although John and I criticize the radicalism of what we do. I, I, th- I think we edged forward. I think the global financial system in itself, the inner guts of the global financial system, is much less likely to produce a suddenly developing crisis than it did in 2007 and 8. I think, however, we have failed to deal with the problems of an overleveraged real economy. But at least we've made progress in one arena. And I think the more people are you know, engaging in debates and continually challenging you know, whether we've been radical enough, what are the f- further you know, steps required, then in an imperfect world, we are likely to make it somewhat better. And I don't think we can do better than hope that we take an imperfect world and make it
1: marginally better. I agree with much of that. I think the hope lies in an informed public opinion which persuades democratic politicians that they actually need to address the excessive power of the financial services industry lobby. And without that, there is no solution to our problems. And we have a big enough mountain to climb in the UK to achieve that. We have an even bigger one uh, to to climb in the United States. My fear is that in the absence of that, we either have uh, another larger financial crisis, which taxes even more the ability of world governments to cope or we have the crazy guys from the fringes of politics who are willing to engage in the kind of issues which uh, democratic politicians have, have failed to do so and I think there are plenty signs of the reality of both dangers in the world at the moment which is why the first is so important and why events like this are important.
0: Well, do you mind me just pushing back on one thing? The, the prescriptions or the recommendations in both of your books, by and large, were not on the, any of the main parties' manifestos in 2015. I personally don't see any signs of them emerging, emerging in time for 2020. So you're putting your faith in a political process. Do we need a different kind of political process and a different kind of democracy to get the kind of radical changes that you're calling for?
1: I think we need a, 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 whether we need a different kind of democracy is a much larger subject than for the last question debate. for this evening. We can have another <laughs> debate on that. Where I think we need to be is I described public opinion as unfocused anger earlier. And what I hope books like mine are a contribution to is creating the informed public opinion whose anger is focused on the kind of changes that need to be brought about. And that's what we need to do to make progress from where we are.
0: As it happens, I'm pleased to say that the RSA is launching an initiative uh, here on the 29th of June, a two-year public engagement programme called the Citizens Economic Council, which is aimed exactly at trying to get uh, the lucid thinking that you have given us tonight uh, more accessible to more of the population to debate these issues. So I'm very glad that we ended up on that point of really uh, bringing it back to citizens engagement and democracy because... um, the title of your book, John, is other people's money, but of course it is our money. So we need to make sure the financial system works for us. It's
1: our money, not their money. <laughs> absolutely. We so, need to uh, prevent it being turned into theirs.
0: Absolutely. So it, it only remains for me to, to say uh, thank you ever so much for um, having access to brilliant thinkers to debate the financial system. Please join me in thanking you, Andrea. <laughs> thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not download our free app to access video and audio files on the go? Just visit our website, the RSA.org, and follow the links to the RSA Vision mobile app.